pray with me, please? Lord, we confess um, with our lips what was just confessed in song. We are complicit in your death. For it was for our sins that you gave yourself up. And so we, we confess that and we cherish um, the grace that comes to us that is greater than our sin. Lord, have mercy upon us now by your word and bring hope to the hopeless and grace to us sinners, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. During this season of Lent, we are traveling with Jesus along what is called the way of the cross or the way of sorrows, it is sometimes called. We, we began on Thursday evening, Maundy Thursday it's called, in the upper room where Jesus washed his disciples' feet and instituted the Last Supper with them. We'll celebrate that supper today at the close of our service. And if you are a follower of Jesus who is walking in fellowship with him, you are welcome at this table. And again, we'll use um, these two aisles to return to our seats today and the center aisle and the far side aisles to approach the table uh, when that time comes. But last week, we saw Jesus travel from that upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane where he poured out his heart to his Father in prayer. And the disciples fell asleep. Not once, not twice, but three times. And then Judas arrived with a great crowd of armed soldiers and an assortment of religious leaders. And that's where we join Jesus on the way to the cross this morning. In Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 54, we read, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And I hear that and I wonder, why is Peter here? Is it some vain attempt to save face after he fled in the garden with all the other disciples? It's interesting, John, again, all of the Gospels tell this story. And John, when he tells it, he says that there was another disciple there in the courtyard with Peter. Peter wasn't the only one who followed Jesus here. It's an unnamed follower of Jesus. It's a likely reference to John himself. But Luke focuses in just on Peter. Why was Peter here, kind of secretly following Jesus into the courtyard? We don't really know, but I, I do hope that it was out of love. I, I think it was. I think that's why he followed Jesus here, even into the high priest's courtyard. I think it was out of love, as I hope we'll see in a bit. But before we move on, let me add one little detail to Luke's telling that comes from John's account. This fire that Peter is warming himself around, John tells us it's a charcoal fire. Remember that. It's a charcoal fire. Verse 56, a servant girl, seeing Peter as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, 
this man also was with him. Peter denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. It's the first denial. I do not know him. How how could this happen? Especially to Peter. I mean, Peter was the one that Jesus had kind of nicknamed the rock, right? Upon whose confession he would found his church and the gates of hell would not overcome it. That's Peter. He was the one who bravely resisted the arrest. We saw it last week in the garden. It was Peter who cut off one member of the arresting posse's ear. He was the one who had just declared to Jesus his undying loyalty just a couple hours before this in the upper room. This is what, this is what Matthew tells us, Peter said up there. He said, though they all fall away because of you, Jesus, I will never fall away. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And yet, here we find Peter, none other than Peter, who denies when queried by a servant girl that he was ever in the company of Jesus, that he even knew Jesus at all. How could this happen to Peter of all people. Well, maybe it, maybe it caught him off guard. Maybe the servant girl surprised him. And you know how sometimes you just say things. But I'm afraid it was more than that, as we're about to witness. Mark tells us something significant in his account. He says, after this first denial, he says, Peter went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. After this first denial, Peter moves away from the fire, back to the gateway, a little farther from his accusers, a little farther from Jesus. As one writer put it, Peter's retreat into the gateway tells in body language what is happening in soul language to Peter. He is getting farther and farther from Jesus. And while he's there in the gateway, in the entrance to the courtyard, a rooster crows. But Peter did not have ears to hear it. Not yet. Verse 58, a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Peter said, man, I am not. It's a second denial. I am not. One of them. You know, the other accounts add insightful details. Matthew says that he denied it with an oath. John says that this accusation actually comes from a group gathered there in the courtyard. Matthew and Mark say it was a servant girl. Maybe she was their spokesperson. But it seems that the assertions that Peter was with Jesus are coming hot and heavy from any number of people in the courtyard at this point in time. This time, Luke records the accusation is simply that he was one of the disciples. 
and yet confronted by yet another servant girl, he won't even admit to that. Professor Dale Bruner presses the meaning of Peter's denial to acknowledge he was a disciple. He was with the disciples on us when he writes, he says, you are one of them too. To deny being part of Jesus' church is no less a denial of Jesus than deny Jesus himself. We cannot love the head who is Christ and hate his body who is the church. We cannot, we cannot love the head and hate the body. Sometimes the church deeply embarrasses us, he writes, and we would like to disavow any connection with her. When we are confronted with a, you are one of them too, our first temptation is to say, no, we are not. And then he says, but anti-church is anti-Christ. We are Christians vertically in our confession of Christ, he says, and we are Christians horizontally in our confession of Christ's church. Christians are church people. Verse 59, after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. A third denial. Man, I do not know what you are talking about. John links this accusation to a relative of the man who had just had his ear cut off by Peter in the garden just hours before. But it seems that what gave him away was his accent. Because Jesus and his disciples, they came from up north, the region of Galilee. And you guys knows how those northerners are, right? <laughs> they, they have an accent. One scholar pointed out that Peter's accusers heard a manifest Galilean saying he knew nothing about the most widely known Galilean of his time. I wonder if Peter tried to hide his accent when he denied Jesus. But they weren't buying it. His third denial is by far the strongest yet. Matthew records that Peter began invoking curses. Matthew 26 says that Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. It may have been that he called down curses on himself. Most translations simply say something like the New American Standard that says, then he began to curse and swear. Because it may very well be that he was actually cursing Jesus. Historians have pointed out that in the second century there was a Jewish revolt that forced Christians not only to deny Jesus, but actually to blaspheme, apparently by cursing his name. Bearing that in mind, the question comes, did Peter, under renewed pressure, in spite of his repeated protestations, resort to what would probably count in the eyes of his Jewish opponents as the strongest way of dissociating himself from Jesus? That is, cursing Jesus. 
students of this passage have pointed out three crescendos. How the number of Peter's accusers gradually increases. First from one servant girl to Peter alone. Then from another woman, perhaps speaking for a group. And finally an entire group comes and voices their accusation to Peter. The intensity of Peter's denials gradually increased from his first denial to a denial with an oath, according to Matthew, to lastly, the calling down of curses. And then there's how Peter physically recedes. He moves from the fireside to the gateway, and then as we'll see, he leaves altogether. As this dark drama is playing out in the courtyard of the high priest's residence, inside that very residence, Jesus is being brutally interrogated. False witnesses are being produced. And finally, the high priest asks this question. Mark records it for us. Are you the Christ? The son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am those weighty words. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him. And to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. You know, it's been noted that inside the high priest's residence, Jesus is facing a trial of messiahship. While outside, Peter is facing a trial of discipleship. Inside, Jesus is making the good confession as he answers the high priest's accusing question, are you the Christ? With yet another, I am. And outside, Peter is making the bad confession with a cowardly, I am not. Three times in the garden, Peter failed to watch and pray. And now three times in the courtyard, Peter denies his savior and friend in his hour of greatest need. Luke is trying to tell us they are related. He goes on, and immediately, while Peter was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Evidently, he was passing through the courtyard where Peter was, and, and he turned and he looked at Peter, and the, the expression there is that he looked at him intently. That language occurs two other times that I'm aware of where Jesus looks with that kind of intent looking at an individual. The first one is in Mark chapter 10 where he looks at a rich young ruler 
And Mark records, and Jesus looking at him with that same intent look, he loved him. The other time that Jesus looks on an individual with this kind of intensity is in John chapter 1. It's where Jesus first met Peter. And he brought him to Jesus, brought Peter to Jesus, and Jesus looked intently at Peter and he said, You are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, the rock. The rock. A look of love and a look of hope. I imagine that behind the sorrow in Jesus' eyes, his last look at Peter contained both of those. Love and hope. And then Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times, Peter. And Peter went out, and he wept bitterly. Matthew Henry writes that from this time forward, the crowing of a cock is to Peter instead of a John the Baptist. It is the voice of one calling to repentance. Some of the ancients, he says, say that as long as Peter lived, he never heard a cock crow, but it set him to weeping. All of this desertion and denial by all of the disciples, if you're like me, it brings questions to my mind. Questions like, what does this mean for Jesus' unfaithful friends? What does it mean especially for Peter? And if, as we saw last week, that every yielding to temptation is a denial of Christ, what does it mean for us? And I think the key to answering those kinds of questions lies in something that Jesus said earlier, the same evening, the same Thursday evening, um, in that upper room. Luke records it earlier in the same chapter, back in verse 31 of chapter 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Jesus says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So Jesus indicates here that what we have just read, what is unfolding in this terrible drama in Peter's soul in that courtyard around that charcoal fire is nothing less than satanic. Satan desires to shake the disciples. Back there, that The you is plural in verse 31. You disciples. He wants to take them and he wants to shake them like a a woman sifting wheat. Violently. Yet in the face of that, Peter is confident. He is self-confident. 
This will never happen. Not to me, he says. Self-confidence. Strong will. Pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. We learn here, counts for little or nothing in a spiritual battle. In fact, it may even be detrimental. President Lincoln, in 1863, amidst the horrors of the Civil War, penned these words as he called the nation to a day of prayer and fasting. He said, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. See, Peter, in and of himself, Peter, perhaps the greatest of the apostles, Peter, in and of himself, does not have the resources to fight and win against this satanic pressure to deny. None of the disciples did. And as if it needs to be said, neither do we. Martin Luther wrote it in him. We sing it, mighty fortress. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, the Lord of hosts. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. It is beyond irony that while the guards were beating Jesus and playing blind man's bluff with him, saying mockingly, prophesy, tell us who hit you. Out in the courtyard, just outside, Jesus' prophecy about Peter was playing out in precise detail. Right down to the number of his denials and their timing before the cock crows, Jesus said. But Jesus has prophesied more than Peter's denials. Did you catch it? He prophesied his restoration. Look again, back at verse 32. Jesus said, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, when you have turned again, not if you turn again, but when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus' prayers 
made this sure, this turning of Peter sure. And Peter writes about all this, and he writes about it to us. In the letter we've been studying, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Can you hear the echoes of Peter's experience in his writing? Satan as a roaring lion seeking to someone to devour. And the all-sufficient grace of God restoring us. What does all this mean for you and me? It means there is hope for us. Even on our worst days. Even when we have denied our Savior. There's hope for us. Our hope is not in our strength or our resolve. It is in the all-sufficient grace of our God. So look with me. Look with me now at the fulfillment of Jesus' restoration prayer and prophecy in Peter's life. It's in John 21. Jesus has gone to the cross. He's been risen. And after this, the risen Christ revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, he's first. He's prominent in this telling. Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee. Two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat. But they caught nothing. Peter is discouraged, it seems. He's returned to fishing for fish instead of men. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Some of you who have read Jesus' biographies, this has a deja vu feeling. You've read this before. Because it's happened before. This is a do-over of sorts. It's a repeat of the beginning of Peter's relationship with Jesus. Ed Welch writes, John echoes the very beginning of Peter's relationship with Jesus in Luke 5. Same lake, no successful fishing, an incongruous request from Jesus, and then a ton of fish. It's a do-over. The last time Peter was fishing in Luke 5, Jesus ended that time saying, from now on you will catch men. And Peter hadn't cast a net since. But now he's back to fishing for fish Again, I hope you get a sense here that Peter is being set up, right? He's being set up by Jesus. 
And it's masterful. So back in John 21, they call in a miraculous catch of fish once again, just like before. They recognize, being the bright disciples that they were, this must be Jesus. And they drag their catch to shore. And verse 9, when they get on land, they see a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard. He hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And all there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Just come and have, have breakfast with me. Jesus invites them. Most prominently, he invites Peter to share a meal with him. And in their day, much as in ours, to share a meal was to share relationship. Peter is being set up to be restored. And around a charcoal fire at that. You know, there are only two places that a charcoal fire is mentioned in the New Testament. You've heard them both today. One in the high priest's courtyard where Peter denied his Lord three times. And here on the beach with the risen Christ about to be three times restored. Look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him for the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter's grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Follow me. And with those three questions and three answers, Peter is back. He's fully restored. As Jesus had prophesied back in that upper room, I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Feed my sheep. And now it's come to pass. And Peter, the epic denier, will be the first to publicly preach Christ in the book of Acts. First one. So in Christ, there is hope for the rest of us epic and maybe not so epic deniers. There's hope for us. There's hope for you. Should we fall and our faith fail us, there's still hope for us. There's greater grace for us. John Calvin wrote that Peter's example teaches us that 
however lame our repentance, yet we may have good hope. As long as it is sincere, God scorns not even feeble repentance, he says. And St. Paul would surely add that having received such lavish grace, we ought to pass it on. Because he writes, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so now we come to this table. And I want you to know, we too are being set up being set up to forsake our sins and be reconciled. To share a meal with our risen Lord. He is here. He is with us by his spirit. And to be lovingly restored to him no matter what we've done. For here we find our help in time of need. On the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. He said, this this is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup, It's the new covenant in my blood, and it's for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. As you come to the table today, it it might be helpful just to pray a little prayer that I I love to pray. It's based on Peter's um, confession. And it it just goes like this. The, The words are up on the screen for you. Lord, you know that I love you. Help me to love you more. And so as you come to the table, confess your love for Christ and ask for his mercy to love him all the more. Would you pray with me? So Lord, we find our place in this story and we know who we are. We know that we are Peter. And we know that you are you. And for that we are most, most thankful. Because of your love for us, you bore desertion and denial and beatings and the loneliness of this way of sorrows, this way to the cross. And then you did bear the penalty for our sins once and for all fully in love for us. And this we remember now together as your people.